0: Keep your Bibles handy today. We're going to be looking at several texts. The Transforming Power of the Gospel, Part 2. In verse 19 of chapter 7, John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah, the cousin of the Lord Jesus Christ, He who said, I am so lowly compared to Jesus that I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes and that Jesus must increase as I must decrease. asked Jesus, art thou he that should come or look we for another? And in Jesus' answer to this question, he alludes to two Old Testament passages, both found in Isaiah that give us a clear picture of the extent of the effects of Christ's salvation. Just how powerful is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ as it is preached without compromise into a culture. We saw last week that as God's word is taught and preached faithfully by his church, that it is powerful enough to transform deserts into rose gardens, powerful enough to not only purge the evil from an individual's heart and fill it with love for Christ, but also powerful enough to transform cultures and the world. And that is a sure promise of God. Jesus called John the Baptist, back to his studies of scripture and what he read about the Messiah's coming and what the Messiah would bring at that coming. He told John, look at the miracles I have performed. They are those that only the Messiah himself can perform. So John, listen to my words. Watch my works and you will see that I am the Lord God incarnate, the Savior of the world the one whom you have been taught to expect. John, who at this point was in prison for his powerful preaching and for calling the tyrannical civil rulers to repentance and righteousness, sends his disciples to query of Jesus, are you the coming one, an Old Testament term for the Messiah, or should we continue to look for another? And Jesus tells them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. And then he quotes from Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear. The dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Look at the miracles I've performed, John. All of them resulted from the fact that I came to fulfill the prophecies of Isaiah. Now, John knew the Bible, and Jesus was certain that John would realize from his quotes the irrefutable proof that he was indeed the Messiah who not only brought grace and mercy to his chosen people, but also vengeance to his enemies, those who refused to believe the truth and continue in their reprobate, rebellious ways. In Jesus' salvation allusion to Isaiah 35 and 61, we're not only given irrefutable proof that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, but we are given a clear picture of how far God's salvation affects the created order. Let's read Isaiah 35 and see the victory of Christ that is promised to his covenant people, Isaiah 35, <clears throat> the entire chapter. The wilderness and the desert will be glad, and the Arabah will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and a shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. Say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. And then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the Arabah, the scorched land will become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, its resting place, Christ becomes reeds and rushes. A highway will be there, a roadway, and it will be called the Highway of Holiness, the unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for him who walks that way, and fools will not wander on it. No lion will be there, nor will any vicious beast go up on it. These will not be found there, but the, but the redeemed will walk there, and the ransom of the Lord will return, and come with joyful shouting to Zion, with everlasting joy upon their heads, They will find gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Here you see the transformation of a desolate desert into a land bursting with life and beauty and joy. Jesus came to change our deserts into a blossoming garden to show to the world his power, his glory, his mercy, And his love. And through the image of a blossoming desert, we are given a vision of the transformation of all of life. We are shown how Christ transforms desolation and emptiness into life and beauty and joy. And in this prophecy, beloved, we can see that this transformation is not simply of individuals. It is a transformation of cosmic proportions. It is a salvation that affects every area of life, spiritually, socially, physically. No area of God's created order will be left untouched. And in verse 4, we see that he will also burn away the dross in society by taking vengeance on the stubborn reprobates. Jesus says, I have come to save my people in all aspects of their lives, but I have also come to destroy my enemies. <clears throat> Christ came to be a cosmic savior, not just a to subjectively transform individuals, but to transform the entire life of mankind on this planet. Jesus came to transform and to save souls, yes, but families, cultures, science, economics, political institutions, the arts, the environment, our future. He came to save us from the destructive effects of evil, evil goals, evil ideas, evil behavior, evil motives, and to replace it with his peace and his beauty. Therefore, as a Christian, it is our task to go into the world and to claim it for the sake of Christ the King, to proclaim his victory that he won on Calvary, to proclaim his reigning power as he sits at the right hand of God, ruling over all creation. How does Christ transform and rule and reign? He does so as you and I, Go forward proclaiming his gospel message that we find in Isaiah 61. Let's read that. Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 6. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Then they will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will raise up the former devastations, and they will repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Strangers will stand and, and pasture your flocks, and foreigners will be your farmers and your vine dressers, but you will be called the priests of the Lord. You will be spoken of as ministers of our God. You will eat the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. So, what is this gospel? It is the power of God unto salvation. Jesus alludes to Isaiah 61 several times throughout his ministry. So what is the gospel, though? That when the poor have it preached to them and they believe it, their life is changed. The word for gospel in the Greek is the word from which we get the word evangel or the word evangelical. And Isaiah uses the word four times in his 66 chapters. But when you look at these four references to the gospel in Isaiah you do get a detailed view of what the gospel of God really is. Jesus said he came to fulfill the gospel. So it is absolutely essential that we have a good handle on it because if our culture is to be transformed, we must bear witness to it, believe it, and preach it in its full context. So let's look at those four places where the gospel is explained in the book of Isaiah. Take your Bible and turn first to Isaiah 40. We'll read verse 1. The entire context is important, and I'm going to tell you something of that context, but it is the verse I want you to see. Now remember, only four times in the entire book of Isaiah... Does he tell you about evangelism or the spreading of the gospel? And yet you get a beautiful view of the gospel. In Isaiah 40, verse 4, he says, Get yourselves up on high, mountain of Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily to Jerusalem, bearer of good news or bearer of the gospel. Lift it up. Do not fear. Say unto Judah, and here's the gospel, Here is your God. As far as Isaiah is concerned, that's the gospel. Here is your God. In other words, he's saying, God is coming to his people in Jesus. And when God comes, he's going to lift up his name, the Lord God Almighty, Nothing will be able to thwart or resist his movement and activities. He will come in such almighty power that he will bring deliverance and consolation and blessing to his people no matter how much trouble they get themselves into. He will free his people from their oppressors and will personally reign over them and bless them far greater than they ever deserve and as powerful and mighty as he is. Nevertheless, he will act as a tender and gentle shepherd who knows how to take care of the weakest and the smallest of his flock. Here is your God. This phrase contains the sum of all our happiness. Of everything else God promises in Scripture, this is the sum total of them all. This is the heart promise from which all the rest is just decoration, the enjoyment of the presence of Almighty God in your life. And what do we do when we preach the gospel? When we want to bear witness to the gospel and have some significance in our lives by giving testimony to that gospel, that will transform the culture. We say to the culture, with reference to Jesus, here is your God. This is God coming to earth to bring salvation to his people and destruction to his enemies. And when we do that, we are then bearers of the gospel. Look at Isaiah 52, verses 7 through 10. We see Isaiah use the word evangelize again in this text. Isaiah chapter 52. <clears throat> Verses 7 through 10. <clears throat> How lovely on the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, Your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. They shout joyfully together, for they will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. Break forth, shout joyfully together, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, that all the ends of the earth may see. The salvation of our God. We see Isaiah use the word evangelize again in these verses 7 through 10. Here it says, the evangelists, the people who bear the good news of the gospel have beautiful feet. They are beautiful people to those who recognize the need for the gospel they proclaim. And when these preachers, these evangelists, these witnesses bear testimony to the good news that God reigns, peace comes to that people, happiness and good things are lavished upon them, salvation in the fullest sense of the word and the restoration of God's social order and complete health begin to take place in that culture and society when this gospel is truly preached. And what is this gospel? Your God reigns. God is king. Now that doesn't imply that there is a time when he wasn't king and he didn't reign. It simply means, since it is a messianic prophecy, that in the Lord Jesus Christ, God manifests his sovereignty and displays that sovereignty and rules over the whole earth through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the goal of this rule, the goal of this reign of God and the Lord Jesus Christ over all of life is that the whole world would see his salvation, that this salvation, this transformation of life, the turning of deserts into rose gardens and bringing life and joy and health to that which is desolate will not be confined to one nation Will not be confined to the subjective life of individuals, but that all the world, the entirety of all life on this earth, will see and understand and appreciate the rule of God. The purpose of the rule of God over all of life in the Messiah is that all the world might see and appreciate the salvation of our God. In Christ, God restores Zion. He comforts and restores his people. And he displays his saving power over all the world so that the whole world stands up to praise and admire the salvation that we have in Christ. That is what we are to work toward, beloved. That is what we are to pray for. That is what God has promised. That is what Jesus is alluding to in our text. That is what he is saying he came to earth to do. I am the reigning God in human flesh, and I reign for one purpose, that all the world might see the salvation that I have brought in myself. That is the promise. Do you really understand that, beloved? Because God has promised this, it will happen No matter what is going on around us right now, this will happen. You must have faith in that. Now our responsibility is to go out into the world, into our spheres of influence and relationships, and call our friends to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and bear witness to them and tell them they have no reason not to believe Jesus is everything that he claims to be. You say to them, All you have to do is listen to what he says in his word and study what he did and then pray that God will open up your heart and put down your rebellion and say to you, and say, I surrender, I give up, I give in. There will be no more rebellion on my part. The third time Isaiah uses the word evangel is in Isaiah chapter 60, the first seven verses. This is another wonderful messianic prophecy and of high imagery. Turn to Isaiah 60, and I'll read verses 1 through 7. chapter 61 through 7. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and, and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes round about and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons will come from afar, and your daughters will be carried in the arms. Then you will see and be radiant And your heart will thrill and rejoice because the abundance of the sea will be turned to you. The wealth of the nations will come to you. A multitude of camels will cover you. The young camels of Midian and of Ephah and all those from Sheba will come and they will bring gold and frankincense and will bear good news of the praises of the Lord. And all the flocks of Kedar will be gathered together to you The rams of Nebaeth will minister to you. There is the gospel. It is a bit of unusual in how it is presented. A multitude of camels shall come forth and shall preach the gospel of the praises of the Lord. Now there are two parts to this prophecy. In verses 1 through 4, you see a contest between the church and the world. The world is a dark place, while the church is full of light and life. And yet under the blessings of God, converting the world, the world will be attracted to the church, and the world will be converted and drawn into this kingdom of life and light. And verses 5 through 10, we see that the world, now converted, will give its wholehearted and full support to the church. The church will not only be enlarged as God gathers his people in large numbers from all over the world, but the church will be greatly enriched as God causes the nations to be brought into the church. That is what this prophecy says here. Here is what the Messiah is going to do. He is going to so bless the faithful witness of the church that the world is going to be converted the church is going to be greatly increased, and with that great increase of the church, the world is going to bring all of its wealth into the church to be used by God for the glory of God. So the gospel is the praise of God, and a multitude of camels bearing the good news of the praises of God. That, beloved, is a picture is the heartfelt devotion of mighty, wealthy men of the earth, bringing all of their wealth on camels into the church to be used to the glory of God. And these camels, all of this wealth, all of this influence, are proclaiming that Jesus Christ is to be praised. Jesus Christ is to be honored. He is everything he said he would be. He is doing everything he said he would do. There is no reason not to believe that Jesus is the Son of God incarnate, the one whom the world was taught to expect as the Messiah of God. Then the last time Isaiah mentions the word gospel or evangelize is again in the 61st chapter, verses 1 and 2, and I'll read those again. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings or good news or the gospel unto the meek or the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim proclaim liberty to the captives and to open up the prisons to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. There is so much here. But the point is simply this. The Messiah is the one who will proclaim and dispense all these blessings. He came to earth to proclaim liberty to the captives. That's the good news, that Jesus Christ came to set us free from tyranny, most of all to set us free from the tyranny of our own sin and the tyranny of the fear of death and the tyranny of the power of Satan. He came to proclaim it. And in proclaiming it, he gives it and he dispenses it. This is a powerful concept. That Jesus Christ sets people free from all their oppression as he proclaims liberty to them. In other words, as his preachers preach the gospel faithfully, in all of their weakness and flaws, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah proves himself to be irrefutable, everything he claims to be. The preached word and what happens to you during the preached word is your irrefutable proof that Jesus is everything he claims to be. Then after alluding to these Old Testament texts, Jesus says this in Luke 7, verse 23. This is a promise and a warning. Blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. This is a statement and a warning. This promise is just as needful today as when Jesus spoke it in the first century. And as long as the world stands, Jesus and his gospel will be a stumbling block to men. Not because his gospel is too abstract, but because it is too plain Not because it can't be understood, but because those who hear it don't want it. It is going to be a stumbling block. Not because it is not convincing and persuasive, but it is because those who hear it suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And if you are here today and you have never stumbled over the gospel or in the past stumbled over it, but you believe it, It is not because of anything you can take credit for at all. It is only because Jesus, the Messiah, has transformed your desert heart into a rose garden, and he has established his rule in your heart, and he shepherds you home. He has set his Holy Spirit within you to bear witness to you that his claims are true and worth believing. Now I said from this text that the things Jesus said and did, Luke gives irrefutable proof for believing Jesus is everything he claims to be. Beloved, do you believe his claims are irrefutable? Are you doubting any of them at all? There is no reason for us not to believe and to submit to every single one of them. It is because many of our brothers and sisters doubt much of the gospel message that our culture is in the shambles that it is. As long as the majority of the church believes that God's salvation is individualistic and subjective, America will continue to deteriorate as Isaac Watts states in his great Advent hymn, Joy to the World, as most of you know, my favorite hymn, he, Christ, comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found, as far as the curse is found. And where do we find God's curse? God's curse has affected every corner of his creation. And Jesus Christ came to reverse all the effects of God's curse on his created order. Over the past 70 to 80 years, Christians have bought into a very truncated and limited gospel that teaches that the Christian's only responsibility is to pull a few brands out of the fire to sell a little bit of fire insurance, to get as many people claiming Christ as their Savior and win a ticket on the bus bound for heaven and the hell with culture. And besides, you have one part of these Save Yourself Christians saying, Why get involved in reforming society? It's a lost cause. Satan has got his claws embedded in this world. And only God, the only thing God can do is rapture his church out of this mess. Then there are those in the church who are so church-centered that they are of very little good in God's kingdom work. Oh, these people, and I'm speaking of a majority of reformed believers have sound doctrine in most areas, except when it comes to a full-orbed doctrine of salvation and the sovereignty of God. They teach that Christ came to bring salvation to individuals and to build his church, but it is a church with no power to reform culture, and therefore they do very little to make a godly impact on economics, politics, education, business, foreign policy, the arts. They believe the world is just going to die a slow death, and then Christ will come to take his church home. Both of these groups preach a defeatist gospel, a powerless gospel, even an escapist gospel. Roussas rusduni said in his book, Salvation and Godly Rule, that, quote, The word salvation, soteria, means deliverance, preservation, victory, and health. And it refers to material and temporal deliverance, as well as personal, national, and eternal triumph. The biblical doctrine of salvation is so clearly one of victory that it must be emphatically stated that salvation is not escape. Escapism has been a dominant note in virtually all non-biblical religions, and I might add, in most politics as well. End quote. Beloved. This pagan idea of escapism seeped into the church about a century ago, and it has emasculated the church. Not only has the world sought an escape from their responsibility, but so has the church. And those churches like RHC, who call Christians to their true calling of reforming all of society based on the word of God, are looked down on and demeaned. Those of us who teach that Christ And his word will not only bring victory in eternity but in time are looked upon as misguided at the least and at worst blasphemous. And then our critics sit back and do very little to stop the deterioration of our culture. And then they wonder why so many of our youth are leaving the church. It is because these brothers have nothing to offer the church programs and entertainment and a gospel that only holds out a message of pessimism and defeat to them. The only hope they are presented is to make it through life as unscathed as they possibly can, and then by God's grace, they will receive a blessed eternity. Salvation is nothing but an eternal work to them, they are taught. It is all about the individual. It has nothing to do with the rest of God's creation. But as you have seen, beloved, through our study of these passages in Isaiah that Christ alluded to in his answer to John the Baptist, his salvation will permeate all of creation as we deny ourselves and we work to implement his gospel message, not only personally, but throughout all of life. Victory over evil is promised over and over throughout God's word as we preach and teach and implement God's word in our lives. The larger catechism of the Westminster Assembly declares with respect to the duty of man, question 91, what is the duty which God requires of man? Answer, the duty which God requires of man is obedience to his revealed will. This is how God works out His victory in history and time through the faithful obedience of His chosen people to His whole Word, a concept that seems lost on today's church. The church today, many churches, teach that God's grace overrules His law, that we are under grace today, not the law. And then they pick and choose which laws in Scripture we should obey. Preachers tell their congregations that the curses for not obeying God's law and the blessings for obeying God's law found in Deuteronomy 28 are no longer a part of God's covenant promises today. But as you can see by a study of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, I suggest you do that tonight. Not only is every jot and tittle of God's law for all generations But so are his curses for those who disobey and his blessings for those who, by his grace, are faithful to his law word. Those people, those nations, those individuals who prove themselves to be outside the covenant of God will receive God's judgment. And those of us who are covenant members of God's kingdom will also suffer the consequences of our unrighteous actions, although... He will use those consequences to bring his people to repent and get back on the obedient path. Beloved, our Lord and Savior, our King, has called us to deny ourselves. But instead, we continue to deny him. As I have told many of you over and over, if every Christian would just be faithful every day in the little things... God will pour his blessings on us and turn our deserts into rose gardens. Let me ask you, husbands and wives, how many of you are truly fulfilling your biblical mandate to put your spouse before yourself, to deny yourself and live for the other? You young people, are you really honoring your parents? Are you doing what they require of you without grumbling? Are you doing anything behind their backs, not only dishonoring to them, but Jesus Christ? Are you all doing your work unto the Lord? Or do you complain about your duties and gossip about your boss, or only put in a mediocre performance because you are unhappy? How many of you? have spent and spent and spent, and now find yourself in difficult straits? How many of you parents have regular family worship? Or do you let other things like private time, television, video games, or even work get in the way? How many of you have just, just can't seem to find time to read and study God's word, but you seem to have time to read other nonsense or spend time in other less edifying endeavors. How many of you read what's going on in the world and instead of telling others of the hope you have in Jesus Christ, you just emit negativism? Are you denying yourself or are you denying Christ? Are you striving to be faithful daily in the little things or are you focused on yourself? Does your lifestyle demonstrate that you are denying yourself and living for the glory of God? You see, until we in the church do these things, relying on the promises of God like Christ was calling John the Baptist to do, beloved We cannot expect God to rain down his blessings upon us. In fact, I am amazed that God has been as long-suffering as he has with us. In order to give it a clearer clearer understanding of why Jesus has called you into his kingdom and how you are to approach each day of your life in order to fulfill your divine calling – It is important to recognize that we are to do everything, everything in the name of God. This means that Jesus didn't leave the right hand of God the Father just to implement a correct way to worship him once a week or to give us a means to escape through some kind of rapture, but to instruct us in how we are to renounce the wisdom of the non-Christian cultural agenda on a daily basis and implement the whole of God's law word in our lives, and in doing so, bringing every area of life in submission to it. Listen to these wise words from the 18th century Reverend William Law, from his book, A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life. He wrote, for the Son of God did not come down from above to add on external forms of worship to the several ways of life that are in the world, and so to lead people to live as they did before in such tempers and enjoyments as the passion and the world approved. But as he came down from heaven altogether divine in his own nature, So it was to call mankind to a divine and heavenly life, to the highest change of their own nature and temper, to be born again of the Holy Spirit, to walk in the wisdom and light and love of God, and to be like Him to the utmost of their powers, to renounce all the most plausible ways of the world, whether it be greatness or business or pleasure to a mortification of all their most agreeable passions in the enjoyment of God to all eternity, In other words, the Messiah, God incarnate, came to earth and lived humbly among his creation, not to bring us a new way to worship him, but to fulfill his promise of bringing salvation to his people, Empowering them to live righteous, God-honoring lives out of love and gratitude for His mighty, gracious deeds. We were called to confront and reconstruct our lives and our culture according to the Word of God and to defeat evil wherever it raises its ugly head. Worship is not just sitting in a pew on Sunday, singing hymns and praying and listening to a sermon, as important and essential as those things are, but all of our life is a matter of worship and praising and glorifying God. Now, there is something essential in all this that I want you to recognize. It is the God-centeredness of the gospel and preaching and evangelism. We are told, here is your God. Your God reigns. The divine human Savior brings liberty to those in chains. The Lord Jesus Christ is almighty God incarnate, the Savior of the world. God has affirmed who he is in his miracles and in his own words. And the point is that the focus of the gospel and of evangelism and all preaching and teaching about salvation is the living triune God. All that we have studied the past two weeks centers totally on God. Man comes into the picture only in his relationship to God. The emphasis is, the, is in the gospel, and it should be in preaching. And that is God's choice, God's decision, God's will, God's work, God's sovereignty, God's grace, God's goodness. Not on man's choice or man's feelings, man's experience, man's decisions, man's will, man's works or man's character. And that is what you and I must come to church for, not to hear about ourselves and how we can live a happier and more comfortable, satisfying life. We should come to hear the gospel and how we are to live it out in our lives for His glory by applying all of His word to all of life. So keep in mind that the gospel is about God. We come to church and we study His word to know Him And to love him and how to serve him. And only secondarily to know anything about ourselves. That is how we must think and live. Life is about denying ourselves and living completely for God. And every thought we have, we must ask. Listen carefully. And every thought we have, we must ask How? Is this related to God? In all aspects of behavior, how is this related to God? Because all of life is to be God-centered through and through. There is another application to make in closing. Jesus saves only poor people. As long as you think you are rich, salvation is not for you. Jesus preached the gospel to poor people. He brings the blessings of the gospel to poor people. And he saves only poor people. So, if you are spiritually poor, and you recognize it, and you will submit to it, and cry out to him for mercy, he will save you from your spiritual poverty, and he will make you rich. Again, what is poverty in Scripture? Poverty is the recognition on our part that we desire to be free from the oppression of sin and of Satan and that we don't have the worth or value or anything it takes to win God's favor and freedom. The poor are not the arrogant, not the smug, not the self-righteous, not the self-confident, They are not the self-satisfied and they are not the self-loving. The Bible says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn over their spiritual poverty, for they shall be filled. The Lord Jesus Christ came to save those who are poor and to know they are poor and so they cry out to him for the richness of salvation oh lord to take my poverty and fill it with your strength and your life and your power my dear friends if we are going to be rich in salvation we must study the bible seriously carefully thoughtfully we must pore over its pages god will not richly bless us with a clear understanding of the full the gospel if we are not regularly and seriously in his word. If all you are doing is reading some daily devotional, you will be anemic at best and dead at worst. Be honest. Are you spirit spending serious time in the word of God? If we are going to bring all of life into submission to Jesus Christ, We must know well the word of God. What does God's word say about deficit spending and inflation? What does it say about foreign entanglements? What role is the civil government supposed to play in our lives? And after all, let me tell you, the word does speak to all of these things. Who is called to teach our children? What does a godly man, father, husband look like? What does a godly woman, mother, wife look like? What penalties are we to enforce for certain crimes? What does God's word say about the employee-employer relationship? Do you want to know what God's word says about these things? If you don't, you do deserve the miserable life you are most likely living and the depraved culture that you are living in. God will not bless you or America until we understand and apply his salvific message, the gospel, to all areas of life. I do not care who you elect to public office in 2024 until the church wakes up and starts living Christ-centered lives and implementing Christ-centered justice and seeking his face and not the false security of the state, We will fall further into the abyss of tyrannical rule and the curses of God. For to whom much is given, much is required. The church was not called to pessimism and escapism, but to God-centered evangelism and victory through the powerful, transforming message of His salvation. If the focus of our lives is to bring glory to God in all that we do and say, He will Turn our deserts into rose gardens. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and your gospel that changes men's lives. Help us to live in such a way that others will see the changes in us and want what we have in Christ. Help us to live by faith and not by sight. As we look around, just never allow us to become pessimistic and escape us, but keep us ever mindful of the promises we looked at today of you turning the deserts into flowering gardens, both personally and culturally, as we speak your word into the world. For Christ's sake, Amen.